Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Our next television is going to go over on that, that side right there. Now we need uh, someone to volunteer to install it. Uh, I would do it, but I stink at such things. So unless you want it hanging up there with bungee cords and coat hangers, somebody uh, please get with me. Uh, yes, that would be great. Turn through your Bible, it's the second Samuel chapter eleven. If you can please stand when you get that. We're only gonna have four four verses today. Second Samuel chapter eleven. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. And he lay with her, for she had been cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. Father, today is a passage of scripture that is meant for warning. And I just pray, Father, that you would just allow it to do its work in every heart here. Help us, Lord, to glean the truth from it and start applying it to our life as soon as we walk out of this building. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The Bible has a bleak view of human nature. Our hearts deceive us. We fail to see ourselves as we really are, which is profoundly unrighteous, desperately wicked, and extremely foolish. We prefer a more positive, optimistic view of human nature. But when God does not have his rightful place in our lives, we can get terribly misguided and have distorted vision. Furthermore, we are deceived into thinking that we are not deceived. That's one thing I love about the Bible. It portrays even its heroes, warts and all. God does not gloss over the sins of even the heroes of the faith. Noah was a man of faith and obedience, and yet he got drunk. Twice Abraham lied about his wife, and Jacob both lied to his father Isaac and his brother Esau. Moses lost his temper when he struck the rock, and Peter lost his courage and denied Christ three times. So unlike the average biography or press release, the Bible always tells the truth about people. It should encourage us to know that even the best men and women in the biblical record had their faults and failures, just as we do. And yet the Lord in his sovereign grace 
uses them to accomplish his purposes. Maybe you had a folly-filled summer or a month when you went completely off the tracks in days gone wild. If there were a box of DVDs documenting your entire life, would there be some that you would want to burn? Do you have a season in which you indulged, imbibed, or inhaled? In chapter 11, we hear the devastating news that King David failed. His failure was spectacular and terrible. All that we have heard of David since he has first appeared on the scene has been impressive. He was undoubtedly one of the greatest men to have ever lived. The problem was that David, despite all that God had given him and did for him, was a flawed human being like all of us here. The shock of his fall is intensified by the genuine greatness we have seen in him up to this point. The chapter begins with King David being at the height of his greatness. Look at verse 1 with me. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabob. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle. Instead of baseball, basketball, or football season, Old Testament cultures had war season. Wars were generally fought in the springtime where the mud wouldn't cause the chariots to get stuck. In this particular season of war, David remained at Jerusalem. There's a certain emphasis in the Hebrew sentence on those two words, but David. The story about to unfold will not be about Joab and the troops at Raboth. Our attention is brought firmly back to Jerusalem where David remained. This is the first step in David's downfall. He was supposed to be leading his troops and engaged in battle confronting the enemy. And by the way, most of our temptations happen when we're not doing what the Lord has called us to do. Now, scholars think David was somewhere between 47 and 52 years old at this time. And so he evidently decided to take a break and let the younger men go on without him. It seems that instead of fighting, David has became a little complacent. And that's a great danger for all of us this morning. Do you remember when you got that first new car? You drove it almost every day. You cleaned it. You took care of it. You won't let nobody eat in it. Now, a few years later, there's coffee stains on the dashboard and French fries stuck in the cushion of the seats. What happened? You lost your passion for that car, or better yet, you got complacent about having it and became careless. I think this is what happened in the life of King David. Now, we have many questions before us that the text refuses to answer. Can we account for David's out-of-control character in any way? Was he under unusual stress? Were there difficulties occurring at home? Did he feel unappreciated? Was he suffering a midlife crisis? The questions we want to ask are understandable because as we witness David's fall, we are all 
too well aware that we share the same weakness of his human nature. Look at verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. His circumstances make a sharp contrast to the troops fighting the Ammonites and besieging Raboth. As they were engaged in that life and death struggle, David has been resting on his bed. Now he stretched and took a stroll out on the flat roof of his palace, enjoying the cool evening air. The scene is relaxed, casual, and calm, and seemingly safe. But the sequence of events that will begin to unfold will show us that the king, in fact, was not safe. The power that brought David down was not an external enemy. King David was not safe from himself. The walls of Jerusalem offered no protection against his own deep flaws. In Spurgeon's classic devotional, Morning and Evening, listen to how he describes this event. He writes, David should have been engaged in fighting the Lord's battles, instead of which he tarried at Jerusalem and gave himself up to luxurious tranquility, where he arose from his bed at eventide. Idleness and luxury are the devil's jackals and find him abundant prey. In stagnant waters, noxious creatures swarm, and neglected souls soon yields a dense tangle of weeds and briars. Oh, for the constraining love of Jesus to keep us active and useful. He goes on. When I see the king of Israel sluggishly leaving his couch at the close of the day and falling at once into temptation, let me take warning and set holy watchfulness to guard the door. Is it possible that the king had mounted his housetop for retirement and devotion? If so, what a caution is given us to count no place, however secret, a sanctuary from sin. While our hearts are so like a tinderbox and sparks so plentiful, we had need use all diligence in all places to prevent a blaze. Satan can climb housetops and inner closets, and even if we shut out that foul fiend, our own corruptions are enough to work our ruin unless grace prevent. He finishes by saying, Reader, beware of evening temptations. Be not secure. The sun is down, but sin is up. We need a watchman for the night as well as a guardian for the day. O blessed Spirit, keep us from all evil this night. Amen. So as David is overlooking all of his great accomplishments, his eyes fall upon a woman who is unusually beautiful. The word means there, perfected. There was no blemish about her. Just think of a female version of me. She had physical perfection. She was more beautiful than any of David's wives or concubines. Literally, the Hebrew says, the woman was very good to see. Now, there are those who believe that knowing her house was in view of the king's rooftop, Bathsheba was an active participant in this drama. The Bible, however, doesn't say that. And even though Proverbs 11 does say that a woman without discretion is like a jewel in the snout of a pig, 
The Bible lays the responsibility for this sin, this sin exclusively at the feet of David. In other words, Bathsheba's possible lack of discretion provides no justification for David's actions. And remember, guys, being middle-aged as David was is no defense against this sort of thing. Heard of a young preacher who was talking to an older one. He asked him, when will the problem of lustful temptation leave me? The old preacher said, about three days after you're dead. But I've heard some lame excuses defending lust. Things like, hey man, I'm just enjoying one of God's beautiful creations. Oh yeah? Do you look at dolphins and trees like that? Well, if you do, we got another set of problems we have to deal with. I remember hearing the story of a guy who was shopping with his wife at the mall. And as they were shopping from store to store, a curvaceous young woman walked by. But instead of averting his gaze, he followed her with his eyes for an extended period of time. Finally, he looks over at his wife, who has been watching the entire time. And all she said was, was it worth all the trouble that you are now in? Likewise, when we sin, is it worth all the trouble that we are now in, in the breaking of our fellowship with God and the grieving of his Holy Spirit? Now, a man can't be blamed if a beautiful woman comes into his line of vision. But if the man deliberately lingers for a second look in order to feed his lust, he is now asking for trouble. Martin Luther used to say that he could not keep the birds from flying over his head, but he could keep them from roosting in his hair. Just so. I cannot keep temptation from coming, but I need not embrace it. David's first look was innocent, but when he lingered, he began to lust. As a side note, ladies, with spring and summer coming upon us, please watch how you dress. If you are standing in front of your full-length mirror and you think to yourself, man, this outfit makes me look smoking hot, please change into something else for the benefit of us all. Because this kind of thing of lustful temptation is everywhere, even if you're not looking for it. I remember many years ago at my work, my old supervisor came up to me one day when I was casing mail. I turned to see what he wanted, and he stuck this magazine of a half-naked lady in my face and said, What do you think about that, preacher? Immediately I replied, The lust and desires of this world are passing away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. I wish you could have seen his face. He dropped the magazine to his side and simply said, I'm going to quit bothering you now. <laughs> Don't you love when the Holy Spirit gives you the right thing to say at the right moment? <clears throat> I want you to notice two different words in verse 2. David saw a woman, and she was very beautiful too. And here's the second word, behold. First, he saw a woman. He couldn't help that. She came into his field of vision through no fault of his own. He flipped the channel, and there she was. But the other words suggest something different. He went the next step and beheld her. 
This suggests an extended type of gaze. When David paused and took that longer second look, his imagination began to go to work, and he started to conceive sin in his heart. That would have been a good time to turn away decisively and leave the roof of the palace for a much safer place. He should not have continued to look at the woman and foster lustful thoughts. It's interesting to note that every time in the New Testament that sensual lust is mentioned, we are commanded to run, to flee, to get out, or maybe in today's case, change the channel. And that is the only safe way in dealing with sexual temptation because it is impossible to yield to a temptation if you are running in the opposite direction. Concerning lust, the Bible's advice seems to be don't fight it, flee from it. An example of this is in the Old Testament when Joseph was working as Potiphar's slave. Potiphar's wife came on to Joseph day after day begging him to sleep with her. Now I'm sure for a slave that had to be a tempting offer, especially considering most people think Joseph was around 17 years old at the time. And you know, being Potiphar's wife, she had to be a beautiful woman. I mean, if she looked like Ma Kettle, there would be no temptation. He'd be running for a different reason. But what did Joseph do? He ran away from her. He didn't say, hang on, let me pray about it, or can I share the four spiritual laws with you? No, he already knew what God wanted him to do, so he just got out of there. Now, Satan no doubt whispered to him, she's available, she is willing, you have needs, her husband is away, no one will ever know. Seize the moment. So here, Joseph faced a critical moment of decision. But his faith won out and he cried, how can I do this great evil and sin against my God? So note, Joseph met his temptation with a definite act of his will. There was no saying, just once won't hurt. But with no hesitation, Joseph expressed his great refusal with a firm and a resounding no. Listen to the advice from an old Puritan commentator. At that hour, David saw Bathsheba. We are never out of the reach of temptation. Both at home and abroad, we are liable to meet with allurements to evil. The morning opens with peril, and the shades of evening find us still in jeopardy. They are well kept whom God keeps, but woe unto those who go forth into the world, or even dare to walk in their own house unharmed. Those who think themselves secure are more exposed to danger than any others. Get this, the armor bearer of sin is self-confidence. Listen to me. When an image comes into your sight and you know that you shouldn't see it, flee. Turn off the computer, change the channel, close the magazine, look out the window, close your eyes and pray. Do whatever you have to do but don't allow your eyes to lead you into sin. Now what the next verse should say is, David, coming to his senses, quickly turned away, put on his sweatpants, and went bowling. But sadly, it doesn't say that. Look at verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What did King David do? And David sent and inquired about the woman. He did not turn his attention away from the woman he had seen. On the contrary, he used his royal authority and directed his, his attention instead to the woman. David saw her. Now, he could have stopped right there. Instead, he began to research her. He wanted details and he wanted information. How many of us have been tempted and could have walked away from that temptation unscathed, but we continue to dig a little bit deeper and found out a little bit more about it until we were more likely to give in? How much more do you need to know about that relationship you know is a temptation in your life? How much more do you need to know about that place that you know will lead to your failure? The devil just might be in the details. There are some things we don't need any more info about. You don't need any more info about pursuing another person's spouse. You already have enough info. It will destroy your family and their family. You don't have to get any more info on what watching inappropriate material will do to your life. We already know the details of that. You don't need any more info on what going into overwhelming debt will do to you and your family. You don't need to research it, fantasize about it, meditate upon it, or even pray about it. We have enough info to know what we ought to do, and that is to run away. David had been told, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She is someone's daughter, David, and more than that, she is someone's wife. I wonder if the messenger here is trying to make her real to David instead of just an object for his lustful desire. Now, many scholars believe there's a parallel between what David does and what Eve did in the garden. Think about it. Both having everything wanted the one thing they could not have. In biblical history, this chapter is comparable to Genesis 3, and the fall of Adam. In the disaster of King David, we see the damage and weak human nature that we share with him. And we're going to find out that chapter 11 is a sad turning point in the story of David and his kingdom. Just as Genesis 3 was the turning point for the entire human race. Things will never be the same again. David learned three things about the beautiful woman he had seen from his rooftop. First, her name was Bathsheba. Her name even has the word bath in it. You would think that would be some kind of warning, right? Now, there may be irony in the fact that one possible meaning of Bathsheba's name is daughter of an oak. Because what is about to transpire would make a mockery of the world of oath keeping. Secondly, he found out that she was the wife of one of his courageous soldiers who even now was in the field fighting for David. And what makes this event even so much more despicable is that Uriah just wasn't any old soldier. He was a member of David's special forces, like the Green Berets or the Army Rangers today. They were known as the 30 chiefs or the 30 mighty men. They had been with David from the days of Adullam's cave. 
The 30 men were those who have devoted their lives to David and was loyal to him before he had even become the king. They were experts in combat, and eventually they're going to come to be his personal bodyguard. They were trustworthy. They would do anything for King David. 2 Samuel 23 lists their names, and this is the name that appears in verse 39, Uriah the Hittite, one of the 30. In other words, Uriah was a trusty companion of David's, a friend even. And thirdly, from the genealogy we are given, David should have realized that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who was David's absolute favorite counselor. Now later on, we're going to see Ahithophel side with Absalom when he revolts against his father David and seizes the kingdom from him. What does that tell me? Sin has long-lasting consequences. Look at verse 4 with me. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. Oscar Wilde, in his unique way, usually had something to say about everything, and temptation was no exception. He said, I can resist anything except temptation. One other time his advice was, the best way to deal with temptation is to yield to it. Well, how did that work out for Mr. Wilde? Well, he spent time in prison for seducing and molesting young boys, and eventually he died of, among other things, syphilis. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that man will also reap. And David's going to find out that this is still true, even if you are the king. We need to remember that David's power was practically absolute. What he wanted, he got. What he demanded, he received. Back then, if a king desired someone, they simply just took them. That's why you would have a bunch of kids running around the palace, and some of them resembled the kitchen help. That's just how it was. So really, Bathsheba had no other alternative but to obey or suffer the consequences. In fact, refusal could have meant her death. But this one sin is just about going to destroy David. One sin caused him heartbreak that he would endure for the remainder of his life. Now we see the root of that sin in David's own choice of taking many wives. There seems to be a root of lust that was in the heart of David. He knew it was against God's law for a king to take multiple wives, and yet he did it anyway. And like most sin, it started small, but it grew. That's what sin does. It's like leaven. A little leaven and a lump of dough will soon make the whole lump Leaven. It will overtake your entire life. It will consume you. It will infect your soul. It will touch every part of your life. But sin nearly always starts small. It's like leprosy that begins with a little spot but soon destroys the entire body. Now sometimes we as Christians may fall into sin. 
But in my experience, that is the exception. Normally, I don't think we fall into sin. I think we slowly erode into sin. Sin is hardly ever from an explosion, but normally from long erosion. Now, the account of what David did here contains a a number of subtle reminders in the vocabulary and ideas of what happened in the Garden of Eden. So when the woman saw the fruit was good, she took from it and ate. In like manner, David saw a woman, she was good to see, he desired her, and he took her and lay with her. David did exactly what Adam and Eve did. He was ruled by his desires rather than from God's word. Now, the act must have carried with it an enormous amount of sensual excitement. Listen to Proverbs 9.17. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. The Bible never gives us the idea or the impression that sin is not pleasurable. Of course it is, or there wouldn't be any temptation to do it. Listen to Hebrews 11.24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Yes, sin is pleasurable, but it is a passing pleasure. And it never truly satisfies. It only temporarily pacifies. And I'm sure Satan was also working here as he does with us. The liar was probably whispering, no one will ever find out. You deserve this intimacy. You should have it. After all, you are the king. This is his method of deception, whether it's the Garden of Eden, a rooftop, or our own homes. Stolen waters may indeed be sweet. But let me read you the next verse that follows that in Proverbs. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Sin ultimately and always leads to death. It can certainly be fun and pleasurable, but it is a passing pleasure. And eventually that pleasure turns to pain, the pain of guilt or heartache or other consequences. You see, Satan never tips his hand when it comes to temptation. He only shows us the excitement, the ecstasy of it, and the fun that we're going to have. He doesn't tell the drunkard about the hangover. He doesn't tell the drug user this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He doesn't tell the thief that one day you're going to get caught and have to spend time in prison. He doesn't tell the one immorally involved sexually that pregnancy and life-threatening diseases are a real possibility. And so we see David returning to the bed from which he had so innocently arisen a little earlier, but now he is no longer innocent. The extraordinary brevity of the account is brutal. He saw, he sent, he took, she came, he lay. We hear of no conversation between them, no expressions of affection among them. We are told nothing about the emotions or the thoughts of the other person. All we see are the acts we are left stunned by it. As we close, for a long time, I struggled to get my hands around the reality that 
There's something uniquely different about sexual sin as opposed to other kinds of sin. However, it is clear that the consequences of sexual sin are different than any other sin the Bible names. Now, David discovered this truth in a most profound and painful manner. This is 1 Corinthians 6.15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sexually sins, sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So according to this teaching, something happens to us when we sin sexually with another person that does not happen with any other type of sin. We actually merge, if you will, in a spiritual sense with the other person. Now this uncovers one of the biggest lies in our culture today, that sex is just about sex, that it's just about the physical and nothing more not according to the teaching of Scripture. This is why God takes such strong action against sexual sins. It does something to us that most of us as Christians probably never seem to understand at that time. It not only merges our spirit with the other person, but God is coming along for the ride, if you will. Now the antidote to falling into these kind of temptations is through the guarding of of our minds. Here's the advice of Paul on this matter. He wrote, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. If your television viewing, if your internet activity, if your DVD watching, if your book and magazine readings cannot pass that test of Philippians 4.8, you are sailing into stormy waters. Several years ago, a family in Northern California had kept as a pet a mountain lion. They got it as a cub, and it had lived with them for many years. And they treated it just like a pet. But one day, they walked into their room from another part of the house to discover the mountain lion had attacked, killed, and partially devoured their child. Now, why would they have allowed such a thing to happen? Because they thought the lion was domesticated. They refused to believe it was still a wild animal. You know what? Lust is just like that cub. It may seem cute and innocent, but my friends, it will grow and not be domesticated, and it will end up devouring you. So let's all be on our guard. And Father, that's what we desire, that you would put Philippians 4.8 into our minds. Let everything that we see go through the grid of that, Father. And if it does not pass that test, I pray we would turn away from it 
as something despicable. Do that in our lives, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.